What day is this? It's Christmas Day. <laughs> It's Christmas Day. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Hello, Merry everybody. Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And welcome, welcome, welcome to the special Christmas episode of Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on a bitter, foggy night inside a dreary and dusty set of chambers in the city of London. It is 1843. We watch as an elderly man in a threadbare dressing gown and nightcap sits huddled next to a meagre fire. He's slowly eating a bowl of watery soup when suddenly a bell begins to ring. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And for this Yuletide special, we welcome two guests. Our producer, Tiny Tim Birch. Hello. Lisa, <laughs> yeah, can I come and do the Christmas special? <laughs> of course you may. And making her backlisted debut, the writer and editor, Claire Pollard. Yay! Claire, thanks for giving up your Christmas day to do, to do this. It's, it really amazingly is. it's a Christmas miracle. It is a miracle. <laughs> It is a miracle. Uh, Claire has published five collections of poetry with Blood Axe, most recently Incarnation, and her poem Pollen was nominated for the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem 2022. She has been involved in numerous translation projects, including translating Ovid, which she toured as a one-woman show, and she was editor of Modern Poetry and Translation for five years. Claire is also a playwright. I feel this is one of those guests um, where the guest is so overqualified <laughs> to come on and do this. Do you know what I mean? It is, thank you again for giving up Christmas. I mean, we'll be doing something so much Apologise to your children on our behalf. Uh, Claire is also a playwright. Her play, The Weather, premiered at the Royal Court Theatre. A novelist, her first novel, Delphi, was published by Fig Tree in 2022, and the second, The Modern Fairies, follows in 2024. And a soon-to-be children's author, The Untamables. Is published. I love that title. The Untamables is published by the Emma Press next year. She has also written a book of non-fiction, Fierce Bad Rabbits: The Tales Behind Children's Picture Books, which was published by Fig Tree in 2019, and which Penelope Lively described as being essential reading for every thinking parent. <laughs> I, I further will say, non-thinking parents should not rule it out. <laughs> Um, they might really learn one of the best books on children's writing ever, I think. So. Oh, thank you so much. So what will you be doing this Christmas? Because it isn't really Christmas Day when we're doing this. It's not really, <laughs> sorry to let daylight in on magic. Um, well, <laughs> um, I'll be at my sister-in-law's on Christmas Day okay. um, with the family. And um, for New Year's Eve, um, my husband now is co-owner of a pub in Margate. So we're going to have wow. a Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now okay. we're talking. Yeah. Very Dickensian. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Are you, do you say you're at your sister-in-law's? Yeah. What's her name? Sean. So Sean, is, will Sean hear this on Christmas Day? Yes, yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Sean. <laughs> Merry Christmas, all that family there. And Happy New Year in Margate. Well, the format for this festive show is a little different. The book we're going to cover, uh, you've perhaps guessed, is a familiar one, arguably the most famous Christmas book of all. But as well as discussing it as a book, we've each chosen some of our favourites among the hundreds of different adaptations that have made since it was first published in 1843. The book, of course, is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, or to give it its full title, A Christmas Carol in Prose being a ghost story of Christmas. Dickens wrote it in six weeks in order to hit the Christmas market, and the book was a massive and immediate bestseller. Uh, selling out its first run of 6,000 copies by Christmas Eve. Chapman and Hall, the publishers, issued another 10 editions in 1844 alone, and in the US it quickly outsold all of Dickens' other books. 
more than any other book, it has come to define the festive period. The fable-like quality of the story, terrifying in parts, warm and reassuring in others, allows a Christmas carol to adapt itself to whatever generation needs from the celebration of Christmas, be it anti-capitalist tract or cosy middle-class party, which is exactly what we're here to explore. This being a cosy middle-class party. <laughs> now, well, <laughs> <laughs> now um, the, thing is, the thing is, eagle-eared uh, backlisted, backlisted listeners will recall that we made an episode on Great Expectations, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens several years ago. And uh, we just want to clarify, therefore, that this isn't an episode about Charles Dickens. It is inspired by Charles Dickens, but it's much more about the life and times of A Christmas Carol. You will recall, if you've heard the Great Expectations episode, that we uh, uh, you can't hear this anymore because of the copyright reasons. But we did play an extract of an extraordinary <laughs> musical adaptation of Great Expectations by the DJ Mike Reed, <laughs> featuring Miss Havisham s- singing Cobwebs and Cake. And I would like to apologise in advance <laughs> that there is no music in this episode. But please be assured that I have prepared a Christmas playlist of different songs Brilliant. inspired by A Christmas Carol, which will be available on Christmas Day for people to listen to. In and the show description, you can link to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. and featuring several of the musical adaptations, which we may or may not be discussing in the course of the next hour or so. So why don't we go around the table, first of all, and see if we can remember when we first became aware of... What a hard question, Mm. but Claire, I'll start with you. When did you first become aware of A Christmas Carol? Either written down or Mm. watched or... Yeah, it is hard because for most of us, it's a childhood memory. So we're really going back. I, my dad absolutely loved Christmas Carol and would have it on every year. So I guess I was four or five. I don't know. The Alistair Sims version, but also he was a big fan of Albert Finney because he was a Salford lad too and sort of modelled uh, himself mm. on Saturday night and Sunday morning and all that. So um, we like the Albert Finney version. Right. Don't worry, we'll be discussing Scrooge starring Albert Finney <laughs> <Yeah>. very shortly. <laughs> You raise a valid point, which is this is such a well-known book that one of the things I found when rereading it for this was it's difficult to believe that it was written by an actual person and that there's ever been a time where it didn't exist. Yeah. Do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean, though? Yeah, Seriously. Absolutely. It's yeah. so um, embedded in the culture. A yeah, it's Scrooge, become like a folktale or a myth. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bar humbug, obviously. But, yeah. but also, I mean, we was a catchphrase in our family was my grandmother would always say, there never was such a goose. It would always come at Christmas lunch. They never <laughs> often we weren't eating goose. I have to say, mostly we were eating turkey. But that was always the line. But also, but also, Dad, you raise another valid point. Turkey. Yeah. One of the reasons we eat turkey in the UK and around the world on Christmas Day is partly as a result of the success of a Christmas is that carol. Right? Yeah, yeah. It is true. A bird is what you had on Christmas Day. Right. A goose. Massive impact mm. on the poultry trade. Is that book. right? Yeah, mm. massive impact. Thomas Carlyle read it and he went out and bought a turkey. It was the first thing he did. Also, the phrase <laughs> Scrooge is now to be yes, a miser. absolutely. It? And it's on the GCSE syllabus now. It's like a, it's yeah. a text that everybody... Everybody knows. But the point you so probably well. know the story of the premise of a Christmas Carol uh, before you encounter any actual telling yeah. of it, yeah. John. So can you remember your first? <laughs> can you actually remember your first? I, I, I can remember it vividly. I was I was about four, and my grandmother started to read it to me, and I got hysterical. By the time Marley's face 
with its strange light, like a, a bad lobster in a cellar around it. I was, I, I had to get her to stop. And every time she tried to read it to me, I burst into tears. I mean, gradually, obviously, the passage <laughs> of time, um, I, I kind of got over it. And, and then we would read it together. My grandmother and I read it together every Christmas with great illustrations in the book. And, it, and I have read it every year ever since without mm. fail which is a bit sad it's the only no, book, I love it. it's, it's the only book that I do it and, and I don't in some weird way I don't know why I suppose every time I read it I'm just I'm just astonished by how much he packs into such a such a it's, short you're space. the you're the um it's like I'm with the Lord of the Rings it's yeah. uh, you're the Christopher Lee of a Christmas Carol <laughs> I, I read it every year, <laughs> I, read it every year I think fail. it's like a ritual that lots of people would watch it every year without yeah, fail, yeah. right maybe not read it but it's almost like the secular version of going to church, I feel a little yeah. bit. It's like this ritual you put yourself through and secular you come out at the end yeah. feeling like a better person, uh, don't uh, you? And one of the things that really kind of makes it special is that there were a lot of people in the 1840s who were mortified by what was happening because of the Industrial Revolution and poverty. And, you know, this was a live issue. And the book was inspired by him going to, uh, to Cornwall and seeing the sort of the, the children of miners and then Saffron Hill, you know, kids in the, before the pre-teens you know, working as prostitutes, he was completely traumatised by it. And whereas your average Victorian would have written a tract, Dickens turns it into a fairy tale, which is essentially what the book is. Nicky, when do you believe you first became conscious of the text? <laughs> I don't know about the very first time I became conscious of it, because I would have seen Scrooge and Scrooge and um, etc. But I, I was involved in an amateur dramatics production when I was in primary school of A Christmas Carol. And, and so what does involved with me? I played uh, a character in... Who, who was? Who was um, Marley. And, oh, oh, um, well, you think so, but actually Marley doesn't feature very heavily. He just comes on and says, you will see these ghosts, right? The mm. ghosts. And, and uh, I was most disappointed because the fun stuff was actually, you know, the yet to come. But I also got a little bit confused because at the same time, I was, just, I was just getting into the music of Bob Marley. And it is also <laughs> Bob Marley. And I remember going around saying, I'm playing Bob Marley. Anyway, it was a slightly confusing <laughs> moment. But nonetheless, Bob I did Bob Marley was dead to yeah. begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did enjoy the whole experience. That was my first uh, so encounter. So uh, you caught a fire of uh, <laughs> a Christmas did, carol. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, I can tell yeah. you, I, I don't know when I first read A Christmas Carol, but the version of A Christmas Carol that first I can remember being gripped by was... Uh, the cartoon version that was made for American TV in the late 60s, early 70s by Richard Williams. Williams, by yeah. Richard Williams. Amazing. I can remember one school holiday at the age of maybe six or seven. This animated version was just on TV as a kind of schedule filler. And I can remember it so clearly. It was the first time that story that appears not to have been authored, except we know factually that it was that secular gospel that musical that folk tale it's the first time i can remember being completely gripped by it even though i knew what was going to happen that's one of the brilliant things about christmas carol like all good stories every time it's told you think it might end differently incidentally listeners you're going to hear me eat a mince pie in a minute um, <laughs> oh yes please um, uh, john we're going to turn to you to, to tell us a bit about a christmas carol one of the things i hadn't appreciated i've been 
reading a book, John. I don't know if you know this book. It's wonderful. It's called The Lives and Times of Ebenezer Scrooge by Paul Davis. And it's a history of versions of A Christmas Carol Amazing. through until about 1990, which is when it was published. One of the things that I learned from this book is that when Dickens's A Christmas Carol first appeared, with Dickens's reputation for journalism attached and certainly his popular success with the Pickwick Papers, yeah. there was resistance to it because it was quite challenging in its urban setting. You know, 50 years later, it would be seen as a very as a folktale, a traditional Christmas, the goose. At the time, that wasn't the case at all, was it? People were astounded that Christmas ex could exist in that environment. I mean, yeah, also, a couple of things. Dickens is 31, right? And he's not doing very well at this stage. Really? He's had a he, Pickwick Paper's a huge success, but then Nick, Nickleby did well. But then Martin Chuzzlewit absolutely bombed. So he's got serious financial problems. And he, he writes a, a Christmas Carol, amongst other things, to make money. That's what he wants to do. And he puts himself on a profit share because he thinks he'll make more money. But be, <laughs> this is there's a, such a great parable in this. He really liked, he wanted it to be nicely produced, yeah. a nice paper, a nice... Yeah. So he only made £230 uh, profit on the first <laughs> run of the book. He was expecting to make three times as much. I mean, that's... To I hope he sold it, the film rights. But to put it in perspective, <laughs> that is about... No, but the really the really interesting thing, then it is incredibly successful. It goes and, it, and it's... And, and it's it a word of... But the point is, it's, it's a, a word, word... Absolute it's a word of mouth. success, right? It's, it's a, a word of mouth success. Within, within, no, not a sleeper. No. It lands, Boom. but they, they can't keep up with demand. No. And it's so popular... Really? People already pick up on it and, and start and retelling st it and start retelling it within within six months. But by you know of it being published, there are there are eight different productions of it going on being produced in London. So and it as as I said at the beginning, does he of the show, make we, money for that at the time? Does that ah the the genius thing? Okay, ten years after it's published, he ha he suddenly realizes that what he needs to do with a Christmas Carol is to perform it himself. So he he I mean it's it's an astonishing thing that he does. He he goes and he if you, you can still see the chat books he reconfigures it and then he performs it he does he does all the voices performs it in front of an audience and it goes mental and he that's where that <laughs> where might Dickens made that? more money from from performance than he did from 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 publishing because he goes he tours the UK but he also tours um I think one year he did 27 kind of uh, live performances of the book what's interesting about that is you've presented that, John. Um, you know, the Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol is a book about a man who's very obsessed with money. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I know. one of the things why we probably enjoy a Christmas Carol is we can probably see some of Scrooge in ourselves and we can mm -hmm. sort of see some of Dickens in Scrooge or Scrooge in Dickens. Yeah. So the idea that he writes the book, it doesn't make much money. He watches as it becomes this huge popular phenomenon, and after a while, he thinks, "Well, well yeah. I need to, I need to cash in on the on that." And that's one of the reasons why he turns it into a performance piece. Yeah, I mean, so it, and it's powered by the basic ideas, right? Are that people matter more than money, and it's never too late to change. That that kind of sums up what the what's what's going on in the story. But that there's some madness in this book when you read it. 
and we'll talk about this maybe a bit later, the lists, the endless iterations of things. He's obviously, he, he wrote, he spent hours wandering the streets, sometimes 20 miles a night, making the, telling himself the story in his head. And then he, he wrote it in six weeks, bangs it out. And then it kind of, as, as you say, Andy, it gets taken over by the world and he gets it back. So one year he did 127 performances of Christmas Carol and to packed houses. I think he, it, it made him about one and a half million quid in one year in, in, in today's It's worth money. saying as well, you can only perform it because it's a novella, right? Because yeah. it's not like his other, you know, it's not a full novel. And he, and he did, yeah, exactly it's probably, right. It must be the most successful novella of all time. Yeah, it'd be hard to think what else, what other short books like this. Yeah. Yeah. I love a Seagull. short book. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, Claire, uh, have you seen A Christmas Carol performed in a, a one-man show or a reading? No, no, I haven't. John, have you? No, I haven't. I, I know Simon Callow is supposed to do a really good mm. one. Patrick Stewart and Simon Callow both in latterly have performed it as a piece. Yeah. And they tend to perform the whole thing, whereas in fact Dickens, Dickens yeah. didn't. Dickens had a, a clear sense of what went over with the audiences, so that every time he did it, he would um, tweak it. He would concentrate. This is another thing we're going to talk about. He would concentrate on the Cratchit family Christmas, yeah. and in that era, the family Christmas within the urban mm. setting was the hook of A Christmas Carol. Whatever else, what other parts have fallen and risen in the years since, that was the thing that people responded to yeah. Like initially. a good stand-up, he refined his... Uh, Absolutely. And he also his... would improvise around it as well. Right. People say that when yeah. they went to see him, he was always working in new bits. Yeah, never the same show twice. To, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you mm. must find this in the theatre, in your theatre work as well, Well, I've well, done right? a one-woman show, so I guess it was similar. It was based on my book, but I yeah, okay. cut it and worked with the director. And and with presumably with audiences as well, you listen to what yeah, works. Totally. Yeah, as a poet as well, that's often how I... I mean, I, th I think the, the thing about Dickens too is that he, it killed him. I mean, the performances killed him. I mean, he he, put, he he was put so much into it. I mean, his son says at the end, you know, that but the, by the time he 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 performed at such a level of intensity, physically couldn't withstand it. So. All right. So before we move on to our first <laughs> non-Dickensian telling of the of the uh, tale, let me ask you each very quickly, very quickly, what do you think is the hook of a Christmas Carol? Nikki. Redemption. John. But it's never too late to change. It's about changing your script, isn't it? I suppose. I think it's about three ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> four, actually. Four, four ghosts. There are more. four ghosts. Um, <laughs> Wait, that was in the title. But are they are they ghosts? Well now, here uh, we go. Uh, are they ghosts? Are they Oh, we haven't even got onto the Freudian <laughs> readings of this thing oh, yet. No. I can't wait. Um, Claire, which adaptation of uh, A Christmas Carol have you brought for us to discuss? I would like to discuss um, Scrooged, the 1988 <laughs> comedy with Bill Murray. <laughs> I am familiar with it. Yeah, yes, I'm familiar. directed by Richard Donner, who also did Superman and the Goonies and Lethal Weapon and a lot of my favourite films of that era. I'm giving myself away now. I guess I watched it first when I was about 11 or so. It should be said that um, I was a sort of very clever, obviously, but also <laughs> lonely, 
Oh. Lonely, depressed, and cynical child. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, welcome to the book world. <laughs> Go on. Um, and for me, sort of the, the holy triumvirate of, of humour was probably Blackadder, Garfield, and Bill Murray. You know, I, okay. I, I loved sure. sort is, of cynical, deadpan humour. Is there a Garfield Christmas Carol? Probably. <laughs> there should be, I there? bet there, there is. I also absolutely loved um the the female lead in, in this film karen allen oh, who was Mar- marion ravenwood in indiana jones when she drinks the men under the table i think that had a rather yeah. outsized influence on <laughs> on who i wanted to be when i grew up yeah when bill murray made this film when i watched it when i was 11 or 12 i guess it was i'd always watched christmas cow but this was a christmas cow for me and it seemed yeah. okay. so directly to appeal to everything um, that i loved what is the premise of Scrooge for anyone who hasn't seen it? So this is the really clever thing. It's, it was a contemporary update at the time. I mean, I showed it to my kids this weekend and it, it's like a history piece now because it's yeah. set in the <laughs> 1980s, but it was very, very contemporary at the time, which I always like, you know, art that's about now. It felt really cutting edge. But it would have been very easy for them to update it so he was a sort of 80s banker, a sort of Wall Street banker or something. But instead what they've done is make him uh, an executive at a, television studios and they're doing a live version of Christmas Carol <laughs> that they're, they're putting out on Christmas Eve and he's Hackett in charge of Scrooge. that. John Houseman doing um, the voiceover. I so I think that's really clever. It means he's not called Scrooge. He's called Frank Cross. Um, they... He does have Mr. His, Cross. He does have his, as a very on the nose character. Yeah, okay, that, maybe that's not that clever, but <laughs> <laughs> but it allows it to be very meta, you know, quite postmodern yeah, and yeah, have yeah. enormous fun because you can see the original and they get to sort of poke fun at the original and the sentimentality and the what we might accuse Dickens of being twee or sentimental. There's this fabulous bit where Tiny Tim is played by an acrobat and at the end they're sort of <laughs> cured and they throw away their crutches <laughs> and do somersaults and things like that. Um, so they get to have all sorts of fun, I think, with the original and both showing which beats are the same and then making certain beats different. I yeah. think it's, it's yeah, very yeah. playful. They can skirt that. around the story in really clever ways. Can't yeah, they? yeah. When you were 11, did you think it was primarily funny or primarily dramatic or primarily scary funny i think it i think it's sort of savagely funny it's real they really lean into the black humor and that's why i would argue it's one of the best versions because i think that's where dickens falls down a bit the the dickens starts the i think the voice at the beginning dickens's own voice at the beginning yeah. is very funny and and early on scrooge does make a couple of jokes doesn't he about you know he thinks people should put a stake of holly through the heart of, you know, people who go on about Christmas. But then actually Dickens says Scrooge was not in the habit of cracking jokes. He sort of thinks, mm. oh, I shouldn't make him tell jokes. That's too merry. It makes a stupid joke with Marley, um, the gra- that- gravy joke. You know, what, what they're like, yeah, yeah. they're like, we'll come on to it, but they're a bit like Statler and Waldorf in that yeah, scene. It's, yeah, yeah. He's playing, he can't resist having a ghost and Scrooge do a bit of pan, a bit, bit of, yeah. bit of shtick, Andy. A bit of shtick. But actually sort of, misanthropic people like Blackadder and Frank Cross actually do make the best jokes in real life. Yeah. Often it comes from that dark, nihilistic place. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I think in Scrooge, you know, they, they really lean into that and it's, it's very, very fun. The bit where he tries to staple antlers onto, onto mice. <laughs> yes, that, that's it's, very good. It's amazing. I, uh, one of the things I found watching Scrooge again, um, I didn't see it when it came out, but I had seen it. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, how... Christmas films um, 
regardless of how they land at the time. And this was a big hit, but It's a Wonderful Life, for instance, was not. Because they're on every year and you see them over and over again. I don't think Elf was a massive hit mm, or anything yeah, liked yeah. it very much yeah. when it came out. And now people yeah. love it because people they get it. used to it and they see it over and over again. The, but Scrooged, I had forgotten what a hip film that is oh, in sorry. some ways, right? Yeah, yeah. So Carol Kane is in it. Uh, <laughs> it's very funny. Um, uh, uh, David Johansson <laughs> of yeah, New, the New York Dolls yeah, is yeah. in it. Miles most, Davis is in but it. Miles <laughs> Davis. I actually <laughs> I was watching it the other day. I totally forgot that. I was thinking, there we go, right? The, Who does the, he play? The, 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 I was thinking... That trumpet sounds like Miles, <laughs> and the camera pans across Miles. I was thinking, how on earth? What were the conversations in 1988 where somebody said to Miles, "We need you to just rock up to the soundstage and and bust. that makes it all the more culty and fabulous mm. now, doesn't it? Like, it does, all, yeah, yeah, yeah it does. I think Scrooge, Scrooge is a fantastic film to watch at Christmas. It's just, you. it's funny, it's clever. It's it, as you said, it's dated, but that also then adds a brilliant element to it now. Like it, as you said, it's a historical piece now that make you know. Our children would, I think, would find that funny because it's it feels there's, of its time. There's one thing I just don't understand: why Bill Murray shouts all the way through. Ah, it. Ah, yes, and well, will tell us I will tell you. So yeah, I think it was really quite fraught on the film set, and the writers and the director mm. and Murray all coming at it from different angles. Yeah, yeah. Richard Donner was um, had just come off a big uh, hit with a couple of the Superman films, and the and and Bill Murray had come off Ghostbusters, oh, but Ghostbusters. taken a break. And the writers and Murray, as I understand it, didn't see eye to eye with Donna because no one, as you say, was quite agreed on what film they were making. And also Donna had no eye for comedy. So he's constantly saying to Bill Murray, more Bill. Yeah, right? he, Bill, Bill said, we made it so fast. It was like doing a, a movie live. He kept telling me to do things louder, louder, louder. <laughs> I think he was deaf. Yeah. <laughs> well, that explains that's brilliant. But it, but I, 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 as a student of comedy, I found it really interesting to watch again because actually I can sort of see what Bill Murray means. There are gags that don't, that the editing is sort of weird. Yeah. The, the beats are a bit weird for the for where you would expect the joke yeah. to land. But it has a sort of psychotic intensity. Yeah. Well, yeah, psychotic intensity. Here is my observation about <laughs> Scrooged. Scrooged is a remake not of one, but of two films or books. What's the second one? First one is A Christmas Carol. To me, watching it again, I thought, oh, okay, this is fascinating. An executive at a network is mad as hell and won't take it anymore (laughs) and breaks into a live broadcast to tell the audience directly. It's a remake of Network Network. starring Mm. Peter Finch. I'm mad as I'm not going to take it anymore. But seriously, it really is. It's like using the Christmas Carol to address how popular culture and television eat eat themselves. They go round and round and round and round. And... So Bill Murray grows up, doesn't he? The car- Bill, Mr. Yeah. Cross, what is his formative influence as a child? Yeah, there's um, an amazing scene in the original Christmas Carol. Um, there's a scene where Scrooge, I think often gets forgotten because it's hard to televise, but where he's reading and all the characters almost seem alive to him, yeah. Alibaba and Robinson Crusoe and the parrot. Um, and I think that's done particularly well in Scrooged, where mm. it, it's sort of his villain origin story. Um, he's taken back to this 
little house that has no Christmas lights up and he's he's just stuck in front of the TV at Christmas and that's... And his dad is like a kind of Mr. Micawber figure. Yeah, yeah. Sort of so so um, I think we should... I just want to read this quote from one of the writers because I thought it may really made <laughs> yeah. me laugh. And then maybe you would read us a, a bit yeah. of the carol because we haven't actually heard any, any Dickens yet. And um, one of the writers said this... I won't swear because it's it's a family show today, isn't it? <laughs> but I'll bleep myself. Uh, O'Donoghue was very critical of the finished film. He said, "We wrote an effing masterpiece. <laughs> we wrote it happened one night. We wrote a story that can make you laugh and cry. You would have wanted to share it with your grandchildren every effing Christmas for the next hundred <laughs> years. The finished film, on the other hand, was a piece of unadulterated, unmitigated." Leap stolen. <laughs> I like it. I, 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 I like it. I like it. Have we got some um, some of the text? Okay, so I think I'm going to read um, a little bit of a Christmas Carol, which is to do with the relationship between Ebenezer Scrooge and Belle. This might lead us actually onto the Finney version because I think it it's done superbly in the Finney version. Partly because in Scrooge, I think the relationship between Frank Cross and Claire. Um, is really well done and takes sort of, there is a rom-com struggling to get out of A Christmas Carol, isn't there? (laughs) With that sort of lost love. And it sort of, it runs with that, I think, very, very effectively. Particularly in the the Ghost of Christmas Future scenes where he he said to her, you know, she's working at a homeless shelter and he said, scrape them off, Claire, you know. And (laughs) it imagines what it would be like if she actually listened to him. Mm -hmm. And she's this very stony, rich, nasty cruel woman in the future i think that's really really well done and you believe that's something that would redeem him yeah. in a way i often think the ghost of christmas future is just literally someone saying you will die <laughs> but I, I i feel that that, no that part of it's carried through really well so um so yeah i like the rom-com element of scrooged and so i'm going to read this from the original the dickens it matters little she said softly to you very little Another idol has displaced me. And if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you, he rejoined. A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. Oh, you, you know see. what? He's a, he, he wasn't bad, he was wasn't it? wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, you fear you. the world. Yeah. Uh, well, you said we might um, go on to Scrooge. We will go on to Scrooge. Musical adaptations of Christmas Carol, of course, uh, there are many <laughs> of them. Um, I'm toyed with talking about um, a surprisingly faithful adaptation, an animated one from the early 60s, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, (laughs) which um, I saw last week. Now, the two things to say about Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol are, first of all, it is very true to the uh, original text, apart from the fact they had to put in a load of (laughs) jokes about Mr. Magoo not being able to see see stuff, (laughs) which slightly jibes with the the, the visions of the the spirits. (laughs) Uh, But the songs for Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol are amazing. And they were written by, um, they were co-written by Jules Stein. And Jules Stein 
was the collaborator with Sondheim on Gypsy. I was thinking when, it, when I was listening to the music, I was thinking, this is much, much better than it needs to be for Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Uh, and that's why, because they got the absolute top of the shop composers to, to work. So you can, you can hear that. I think it's on Spotify. You can watch some of it, some of those numbers on um youtube it's interesting isn't it that they that, that a lot of these adaptations get they get kind of a the a game players i mean actually the, the donna t- team was an amazing one yeah. for an 80s movie but the you know you mentioned the richard williams adaptation is beautiful extraordinary he's an amazing english uh, animator who went on to do roger rabbit uh, amongst other things but he um the exec producer on that christmas carol was the great chuck jones uh, ah, was it? Yeah, and 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 the he the, the animation that Williams does uses all of the incredible John Leach illustrations from the nineteenth century. It's right. one of the most beautiful, and then it's gets back Alistair Stim, as it were, from beyond the to do the the voice of Scrooge. So that's I mean, wonderful. Okay, so so animations, and musical adaptations, come on to Scrooge. Scrooge musical is made in the late sixties, nineteen seventies, and believe it or not, I'm sure we talked about Scrooge. Scrooge, Scrooge, yeah. Before I think we on have that listed because it's uh, it's clearly as a film musical, it's clearly inspired financially by the success of oh, Oliver. Right. Yes, right. So it's a big kind of set piece musical. Uh, it stars Albert Finney, who at that time was one of the biggest Hot. British film stars in the world. Marley is played brilliantly, though probably not as well as the young Nicky Burns, you. uh, by Alec Guinness. Alec An Guinness. absolutely superb yeah. performance by Alec Guinness. The film was directed by Ronald Neem, and Alec Guinness and Ronald Neem have worked together in David Lean's Dickens adaptations, but they'd also worked together on the film adaptation of The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey, That's which right. is another book we've talked about on Batlisted. Ghost of Christmas Past is played by Dame Edith Evans. <laughs> Ghost of Christmas Present is played by Kenneth Moore. Moore yeah. And, you know, Christmas Yet to Come is another no, really. guy in a hood. <laughs> no face. <laughs> <laughs> For me, as a great lover of musicals and film musicals, it has lovely little set pieces in it. The score is by Leslie Brickus, who had worked with Anthony Newley in the early 60s, had great success with Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, had written Bond music and, and what have you. There's a wonderful set piece called Thank You Very Much, which uh, is probably the best song in the movie. Look at that on YouTube if you don't know it, which is so brilliantly choreographed. It's like the whole, th- it's like, it's almost like Ronald Neem said, well, this bit's good so we can coast some of the rest, right? But here's the Christmas miracle. I was at a bad record fair last weekend. <laughs> I have done nothing for the last few days but watch versions of Christmas Carol. So I'm already feeling quite psychotic and I'm quite open to messages from the universe. So i at a record fair and I'm leafing through a box of records with nothing interesting in it. And in there was this. No! Oh, the okay. Scrooge wait, soundtrack. Wait, wait. It's the soundtrack LP of Scrooge. It's got a lovely gatefold sleeve and an insert with lots of pictures. So I thought, oh, that's quite... And then there was a little sticker on the front. I read it and I thought, no, it can't be. (laughs) Is it? 
It's signed by Albert <gasps> Finney. No, no way. Whoa. Regards, John Albert Finney. Oh, That's amazing. I looked it up on the internet and that is his signature. Wow. And who would bother to forge it, right? There's also a signature by from Michael Medwin, who's one of the other actors, and from Anton Rogers on the inside of it. Wow. That's what incredible. are the chances? That is insane. Isn't that, that is absolutely insane. What are the chances insane. of that? Have happening? you played it and sung along? I have, yes. Oh, <laughs> pour, I actually pour think myself that... a large whiskey, sat on my own, and <laughs> did exactly that. Albert Finney to me is Scrooge. Like he plays Scrooge as I imagine Scrooge. He, and I'm going to come on to talk about Michael Caine playing Scrooge. But mm. I think, I think Albert Finney does well, it perfectly. What he's so good at though is because he was aged up so much. He's the best young Scrooge. By far, those are the moving scenes to me. Scrooge, to the best of our ability to tell, was about 57, 56 or 57. So not an old man, really. Right. I think Albert Finney has that level of kind of anger and, you know, and and, and sort of fear that he induces on people. And he's really, you know, he does grumpy Scrooge properly. It's proper Albert Finney role, though, isn't it? All the rest is bloody propaganda. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that you know, in, in you know, poor relationship, but driven poor relationship with a woman that allows that to go. It's as you say, the rom com element is 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 often forgotten. That scene actually makes me cry. Yeah, the scene where beautiful. she leaves him, it's incredibly I, I, powerful. I, I, I think he's also Albert Finney. Young Scrooge is the hottest of the Scrooges mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. over the years. <laughs> I must go back and check that out. <laughs> I think it's kind of flawed Scrooge, but I do I do really like it. And that's an appropriate moment for us to uh, break for this Christmas message from our sponsors. We don't just want to talk about film adaptations, this being backlisted. We wanted to talk about a book. And we, so we all went away and um, did some looking around and thinking about what was a, a, a good retelling of A Christmas Carol. And uh, for my money, and I think John and Claire's, the one that we all responded to so well it was published about 10 years ago by a writer called Chris Priestley. Um, and it's called The Last of the Spirits. Now, you may or may not have read this. I, I, it doesn't matter about spoilers, does it, with a Christmas no. carol? Right? <laughs> um, but I have to say, this, this little novel, The Last of the Spirits, by Chris Priestley, written for children, I thought was the most inspired and ingenious weaving round what we know from Dickens's Christmas Carol with a story that um, subverts it and explains it and presents it to you new. It's What's the setting? quite brilliant. Um, well, first of all, Nikki, I just need to read you what inspired it from Dickens. So this is from Stave, the end of Stave 3 of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And Scrooge is talking to the ghost of Christmas present. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh man, look here, look, look down here exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and girl, yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, 
A stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out, menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade, through all the mysteries of wonderful creation, has monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Well, Brilliantly, Chris Priestley uses that as the starting off point for his book, The Last of the Spirits, which is about two street urchins, uh, one of whom is called Sam rather than Ignorance, and the other of whom is called Lizzie rather than Want. And I'll just read you the begin. although that reveal is not made till midway through the book, but... When you go back and read the Dickens original, you say, oh, that's really good. This is how this book starts. Last of the Spirits. The boy had never spoken to the old man before, nor scarcely noticed him. The old man, had he been asked, would have sworn under oath, hand on the Bible, that he had likewise never seen the boy. But the truth was, over the last few years, they had passed within inches of each other a hundred times. The old man had even brushed the boy aside more than once as he beetled his way to his office. To the old man, the boy was just another tiresome obstacle to be avoided. To the boy, the old man, along with all the other hard-faced strangers like him, was yet another reason to hate the world. And then we go forward, and Sam and Lizzie watch Scrooge, for it is he, (laughs) talking to Marley's ghost in the knocker, right? And here we go. Sam looked on. As soon as the old man opened the door, he would attack him. He had a length of lead piping in his coat pocket that he had picked up when he had fetched the books for the fire. He would knock Scrooge down and they would rob him. He would not set out to kill him, but some men's skulls were thinner than others. Sam was puzzled to hear the old man talking. At first he thought there was someone else there, but he soon realised that Scrooge was talking to himself, muttering wildly and shaking his head like he was fresh out of bedlam. He seemed for all the world to be talking to his own door knocker. Somehow, this eccentric behaviour blackened Sam's mood still further. It outraged him. It goaded him. Why should a witless old fool like this live in comfort and plenty whilst they starved and froze? A crisp, wintry contempt for the old man settled on Sam's heart like a rhyme of frost that all the heat of the Indies could not have melted. It felt good. All these years of hating the world had made him feel powerless but now he had but one target. He would make this one man pay, and that would be enough. Wow, that That's sounds good. like quite a chilling children's oh, it book. It's like having a second film unit, yes. you know, for, for the Christmas Carol. That's the genius thing. You get to relive quite a few of the key scenes, like the, the Cratchits, the mm. Christmas lunch. 
and the ignorance and and and, and want scene. It's just I think it's 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 as clever an adaptation as I've I've ever encountered. I what think. did you think? Though? Yeah, it reminded me. I, I watched Wicked the musical this year <laughs> with my kids. It's a similar okay, yeah. thing that yeah. you, you you see the action from a completely different angle and it transforms your. Do you think, um, Claire, that children who haven't yet found the Christmas Carol story could love and enjoy The Last of the Spirits? Ooh, no, I'd show them the Muppets first. <laughs> <laughs> work, them, work them up to that one. It's quite dark. It's for, you know, it's probably like 10, 10 to 12 at Chris least. First so I would hope they'd encountered yeah. it before. Chris Priest's first book was a really great little book called Uncle Montague's Tunes. Tales of Terror. One of the things I found quite interesting about this one is... Um, and this is backlisted, despite this novel being published in 2015 and still in print. It was quite difficult to track a copy down. Probably. I downloaded it on Kindle, though. As John says, I thought it was ingenious in the best way. Yeah. Mm. It, it, it has plenty of life of its own, and he doesn't bank too much on, on integrating it with Christmas Carol. No. Just, just enough, just enough. If you want to find it, might you find it on bookshop.org, Andy? I believe um, so. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> or in a library, or in a library. In a library. Oh, yeah. So that is Last of the Spirits by Chris Priestley. Uh, I, I think before Nikki, we move on to your choice. Which, let's be honest, many, many, or people listening to this uh, love above and beyond all adaptations of yeah. Christmas Carol. Can we just mention um, a couple of the the other ones? We talked about Alastair Sims' film of Christmas Carol. You boy, what day is this? It's yeah. become a popular internet <laughs> meme. Um, could we mention, uh, none of us have seen this. I, there's also, uh, uh, there was a, a 1975 pornographic film <laughs> called <laughs> The Passions of Carol. <laughs> the three ghosts behave in a, in a, in a traditional manner. Did you manner. watch it as research? I, I was able only to find a synopsis, Nikki, I'm afraid. Um, it looks really terrible. So that's uh, that, that was an excitement. And um, I wonder... Um, Nikki, I think you've got a clip from another extremely enjoyable adaptation, which we should just talk about before we move on. If you're in the UK, you'll get a chance to see this because it's coming back on um, iPlayer this Christmas. But one of the brilliant adaptations was the Blackadder Christmas special, which, like in all good comedy, they they subvert the story in a very sort of Blackadder way. Blackadder, if you know Blackadder, which I hope... Most people listening do. If you're fans of British kind of literature and comedy and film and things like that, you should know Blackadder. But Blackadder, the character, is always incredibly mean. You could say he's like Scrooge, but the, what they do is they subvert it and say, actually, he didn't start off mean. He started off terribly nice. Um, and so <laughs> his, his sort of uh, coming-of-age story is how he came to be, uh, to be mean. What would happen in the future if I was bad? Um, heavens, is that the time I really must be off? I'd love to see Christmas future. No, 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 no. It's terribly melodramatic. Look, <laughs> just show it. Please. All right. Hail Queen Asphyxia, supreme mistress of the universe. So then he gets shown this uh, <laughs> this future where Queen, who normally plays Queen Elizabeth, she is the sort of ruler of the universe and she's there with um, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry and all the characters by her side. And uh, he comes in and is in his gallant way, like he does in all the Black Adders. And I'll just clip to the end of that scene. 
I must respectfully insist that you hand over to me the supreme command of the universe, sew a button on my spare uniform, and marry me this afternoon. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so let's get this straight. If I was bad, my descendants would rule the entire universe. Maybe, maybe. But would you be happy? <laughs> <laughs> and so that is why why he is bad. But one of the things I so found clever. really interesting about that, mm. like Scrooged, Black Out of Christmas Carol, like the um, recent television adaptation of A Christmas Carol by Stephen uh, Knight. Knight, yeah, yeah, yeah. Responsible yeah. for Peaky Blinders. Which I, which I, I didn't think worked. <laughs> but what's so interesting about all these versions is they rely on you, the viewer, yeah. knowing, knowing the story. Enough of the story mm, that, yeah, yeah. that twisting the story, no Dickensian pun intended, becomes the becomes the point of the thing. Claire, I yeah, don't know yeah. what you thought of the Stephen Knight Christmas I've Carol. I haven't seen that haven't one. Haven't you seen it? No, but I love the Blackadder one, and I rewatched yeah. it just last week. What's very clever about it is it the whole idea of you know charity at Christmas. Yeah, it's sort of takes that to its sort of natural end point because I think Christmas Carol does have a problematic relationship with money as as in <laughs> as that, we now know as in that bit I read out yeah. of a Christmas Carol you know that he says there's you know we blame the poor and yet we're very severe on people who try and make money but it's a bit of a fudge the ending really isn't it he can only yeah. buy the big goose because he's got a lot of money he's yeah. got a lot of money and Which if you behave like that people. every day of the year you wouldn't yeah, and Chris Priestley has to has to do something quite cunning. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I thought it was actually it was clever what he does, but he, he has to he has to. It's deal a bit with of a fudge too. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it depends, I think, whether you think this is not to say it has to be one or the other, but in different eras, different readings of a Christmas Carol would would make you think that the character of Scrooge represents a system of seeing the world. Or does he represent personal redemption? Is he, in the classic formulation, is he an individual or is he a symptom? And if you think, and in a sense, it's the same um, problem that you identify, Claire, with Dickens wants to have his Christmas cake and eat it. Yeah, yeah. And wants to have Scrooge be sombre but make jokes. The idea of him as a miser isn't quite right. It's that he's a... Misanthrope. He's a financial... Yeah. Um, wizard for using his powers for evil. He's a Bill Gates at the end, though, because he may be a financial wizard, but in the end he is doing good works. And is that a legitimate thing? You're yeah, still indeed, making money on Indeed. You know. But that's why one of my favourite versions of Christmas Carol is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Ah. Because I think in some ways it improves upon the original. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Um, because it ends with the Grinch takes all the stuff off people, yeah. but Christmas still comes. You know, yeah. he didn't stop Christmas from coming. It came somehow or other. It came just the same. You know, not I always choke stuff. up when I'm reading that to my children. It's not about stuff. So I think, you know, Dr. Zeus solves solves the problem. Also, that, one, of the, one Dickens... of the things that people found objectionable about A Christmas Carol was, was the, 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 the Dickens Christmas Carol was that how much of it was about food. Oh well, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they was, uh, you know, he's, it's not spiritual. <laughs> I remember one of the criticisms, especially in the later Victorian era, was that it was insufficiently spiritual. It was too concerned with eating a lot. In fact, that idea of Scrooge buying presents for everybody—that's quite new. 
in the Albert Finney, yes. he actually goes to a toy shop and spends about 10 minutes yeah. in there, doesn't he? Picking yeah, up. so this is a really interesting thing. So one of my favourite bits of this is, this is pre-Santa Christmas, okay? So uh, before Santa, the you know, the sort of weird Dutch importation from America, Father Christmas was a uh, it w- was a kind of uh, almost like a pagan sort of frost god, a kind of personification of jollity and f- uh, feasting and kind of light, and that's very clearly. Um, I might I might just if we've got time, should I read that just that little bit of where he sees the ghost of Christmas mm. uh, Christmas present? This seems to me to be absolutely the. This is classic Dickens, but this this is a vision of Father Christmas. Really, the gross of Christmas present is Father Christmas pre Santa, and he goes into the room, and he sees this. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had ever known in Scrooge's time or Marley's, for many and many a winter season gone, heaped up on the floor were to form a kind of throne with turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn and held it up high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came paping round the door. Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in and know me better, man. (laughs) Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not the dogged street she'd been, though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind. He did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas presents, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. The garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any (laughs) artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanour, and its joyful air. Man, this is, ah. this is this is what we had before we got Santa Claus. Do you know what? We've all that, eaten your food because that otherwise is going to put our dinners that to sounded shame. Like, that sounded like the meal we had in the Greek restaurant last night. <laughs> <laughs> you, we're going to listen to another clip in a minute, but I want to set it up by just reading one short passage from The Life and Times of Ebenezer Scrooge by Paul Davis. This is his near the conclusion of his book about what the carol has meant at different points in its history. Scrooge was Dickens' words to begin with. But Scrooge was better than his words, and more, infinitely more. The text of A Christmas Carol, penned by Dickens in a few months in 1843, was only the beginning of the larger culture text of the carol, written over the last century and a half, and still being written today. John Lucas has said that the power of Dickens' text derives from its compressed intensity, a quality shared with Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience, of suggesting more than it states. Reaching beyond its words, this expansive text probes our cultural memory, explains the particulars of the changing present and prompts our hopes and expectations. Its power is creative. 
As memory, the carol recalls more than its previous tellings. It is more than the sum of its Christmases past. We cannot remember when we first knew the story. It is allied in our consciousness to our awareness of day and night, winter and spring, rooted to the elemental wish that the fearful ogre become fairy godfather. Tiny Tim and Scrooge in fairy tale reenact Beauty and the Beast. As the archetype of the Senex and Pua, the old man and crippled child, they express human life in its temporal extremes. In Ghost Story, these mortal figures transcend youth and age, innocence and experience to perform a supernatural drama on Hamlet's stage where time and eternity meet. Like Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, we have a compulsive need to retell this story, to search in the ritual of telling for things lost or forgotten. As memory, the carol is myth. If you please, Mr. Scrooge, it's gotten colder. Yeah. Any bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for the fire? We can't do the bookkeeping. Yeah, all of our pens have turned to inksicles. Yeah. Our assets are frozen. How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly... Unemployed! He 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 this is my island in the sun. I believe you convinced them once again, Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about numerous different versions of Christmas Carol Dickens. We have musical cartoons, humorous, satirical, uh, uh, ghost stories. Blah, blah, blah. Nikki Birch has, as ever, chosen what's perhaps the um, platonically ideal version of A Christmas Carol. Nikki, what is it called, please? It's The Muppet's Christmas Carol. It's actually not called that. Is it not? Go on, tell me what it's, it's called. It's called The Muppet Christmas Carol. The Muppet's Christmas Carol. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> I, I, I appreciated I hoped that. and prayed that, <laughs> that would happen. And it okay. did years. Years. Okay, good. Well, it's as you heard, it's called The Muppet Christmas Carol, and it's from 1992. Um, and it's the musical version. For those of you who haven't seen it, um, it's a musical version, and it was the fourth Muppet film. Uh, and the first one directed not by Jim Henson, yeah. but by his son, Brian Henson. Because I think Jim Henson had died at that point. That's right, yeah. Um, but Brian had worked on previous ones, so it wasn't kind of completely new. And actually didn't do that well when it first came out. Uh, Muppet's Christmas Carol was up against Aladdin, which did very well. Um, but has sub And it was panned by the critics. So subsequently <laughs> done very well, as you said, like Christmas movies. Yeah. Um, has come back. If you back. grow up with it, mm. you tend to overlook it. Tend to flaws. come back. Yeah, so don't say the song's by Paul Williams. So... Um, one of the kind of clever things is that they have Dickens in it, don't they? And Gonzo is Dickens. Yeah. And and that's great. Gonzo and Rizzo, uh, they're the narrators. And they also provide all the comedy value because there isn't the story itself, it hasn't got so much comedy yeah. in it. So not they, much slapstick. Not much slapstick. So basically Dickens, uh, Gonzo's character is just kind of constantly, you know, they're, they're getting windows sort of smashed in their face and falling off things and generally providing all the kind of traditional Muppet humour, whereas when the rest of it can be quite dark at times. So for children, you imagine it's like every now and then there's something that everyone's going to laugh at yeah. um, to balance it off. It's joy comes, I'd say, the best thing about the Muppet film is every scene that Kermit's in. So Kermit plays Gratchet, right? And Kermit is the um, the star. 
he just brings so much joy and he's like this kind of full of joy of Christmas. So every scene he's in, he, he tootles down the road going, this is fantastic. Christmas is amazing. Isn't it wonderful? I've got the joy of Christmas. Look at my fabulous family. And, and when I talk to Scrooge, I don't mind. Even though he's horrible, he's my employer. And then sort of Scrooge is played by Michael Caine as a human. Um, <laughs> as opposed to a Muppet. Because the wonderful thing about the Muppets is they did have humans and, and, and uh, puppets together. And Michael Caine plays the whole thing completely straight. He doesn't do humour in it. Apart from that, actually, that one little clip that we, that we just heard. Yeah. That's really his only... The whole thing, he plays it as if he's doing some kind of Shakespearean piece. And so the juxtaposition between Kermit and Michael Caine is kind of, is kind of wonderful, really. So yeah, I am not a musical fan, as as we have explored on many Locklisted shows. And Andy and John are more into musicals than me, but I it's still wonderfully enjoyable. And um, there's a few things I think you know room for improvement, personally, <laughs> in the film. The ghosts on, on. Okay, yeah, okay, right. Like, come on, I've I've held that now. Yeah. Right. The the spirits in the Muppet Christmas yeah. Carol are irritating. Yes. Sorry, everyone. I'm about to say some lovely things yeah. about it, but they are the weak. They yeah. are the weak point. They are the weak link. And we've not prepare? spoken about the ghost much, have we? Um, yeah, for me, uh, Gonzo is is the star because oh, yes. I think it is, it's a great piece of storytelling and when you read the original, it's framed as a piece of storytelling. Dickens' voice is so strong and he, you know, as we said, he told, it was it was oral. It, he, it was meant to be t- sort of read by the fire and I think framing, putting Dickens himself in it is the is the genius of Michael I, one of the Carroll. things I might say is controversial is I don't think Michael Caine is that good in it <laughs> that is controversial yeah because he just like he he switches from being mean to being nice right. like straight away there's like a very quick switch <laughs> it's, it's Christmas day quote unquote so I'm gonna I'm gonna let that go but let me tell you something I went to see them up at Christmas Carol uh, for me, the Muppet Christmas Carol is the Christmas gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> There's so many little things to love about it. For example, um, I went to see this on um, the big screen a few days ago. By a coincidence, it was being screened near me. You're living in some vortex. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I come out Dickensian kind of coincidence. I come out and there's a signed copy of the um, Scrooge by Albert Finney. Anyway. Come this way, sir. We're oh, showing yeah. you the <laughs> Christmas Carol. Well, we could be well, Andy's ghosts right well, now. Well, well, but the thing, the thing is, I had a similar experience um, earlier in the year. I, I went to a big solstice night screening of The Wicker Man. And it, it's a long time since I've seen The Wicker Man on the big screen. And one of the things that I really, we mentioned Christopher Lee earlier. Christopher Lee's performance, which seems when you watch it on television too big, is perfectly judged to be watched in a cinema. Mm, it's fantastic in a cinema. And seeing, Michael. I have to say, I'm going to say mm. these words out loud. You've not seen The Muppet Christmas Carol until <laughs> you've seen it on the big screen. <laughs> hey. Because Michael Caine is a brilliant screen actor. Yeah. And in yeah, the yeah, cinema, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, it, they, I, that's not the thing you've just described is not a problem at all. Um, I mean, I think he's. I think he is fantastic because what he does is he he pitches the performance to that screen, despite being surrounded by little puppets who are incapable of going larger <laughs> or smaller. So, you know. do, but does the big screen uh, official friend of the show Frank Cottrell voice his point? Does it make Miss Piggy any less miscast as, as, oh, as what Bob, a waste. Cratch, Bob Cratchit's wife? I suppose that shows up the lack of good female parts. parts in Dickens. But they could have made her a 
There's ghosts, no female they? parts in in Why it, apart are the from ghosts piggy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. bad. The Muppets yeah. we know and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. Can You know, I, it's a bit of luck that Fuzzy Wig happens to <laughs> happens great. to fit. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's a waste of Fuzzy Bear and it's a waste of uh, Miss Piggy, you know. Fuzzy Bear would have made a great Christmas you know, Christmas present, wouldn't he? He'd have been brilliant as a big, big-hearted kind of, you know. I tell, but I tell you, Nikki, the other thing about the Muppet Christmas Carol, which I think, uh, as a musical, it's a really good musical. Paul Williams, I think, uh, had up to that point written all the songs for all the Muppet movies. Yeah. And um, starting with Rainbow Connection in the first one. and The songs are great. And, and again, you know, I think the songs are better than the songs in... Scrooge. Yeah, they're much Tears better. Tis the season to be jolly. When it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, and when it's funny, it's funny. And when it's scary, it's scary. And as you said, it's got some bits of Muppet business. The thing I found watching it the other day was it's made in the early 90s when you would assume some, though not all of its audience, still remembers quite a lot of the Muppet characters and what they were there for from the TV show. Watching it now... The, the the Statler and Waldorf conceit. You wouldn't know what that was. No. You wouldn't. So, and yet it still works. So there's something kind of, but maybe that's Dickens. Maybe it's the archetypes work rather than the Muppet It's also archetypes. very interesting because technology has come on a long way since that. And that was a film where the Muppets were using puppeteers, right? And so there was an amazing um, scene where, Bob Cratchit is walking down the road with his son singing the Tis the Season to be Jolly and they show the Muppets' legs. That was a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) There's a weird bit in Dickens when he's talking about that very large turkey and he says... It was so big, it, it, the legs underneath it yeah. were snapped like a, like sticks of sealing wax, which is a very odd thing to say in just a, a, apropos of nothing. But I felt, I've, when I last watched the Muck, Muck, Muck's Christmas Carol, Muck, Kermit's legs are really troubling for that reason. <laughs> they look really thin. Nikki, was there a bit from the Dickens original that, that reminds you of part of the Muppet Christmas Carol or vice versa? Well, yeah, so I thought I'd read... Um... An early bit where, which is a bit like the clip that we played at the beginning of this, from the from the beginning of the book. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond a sort of tank was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so much very smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal-box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort 
not being a man of strong imagination, <laughs> he failed. <laughs> oh, well done. Beautiful. Well not done. particularly Christmassy end to <laughs> the show, <laughs> but, you know. Well, I'm afraid it's a time now for us to leave you to your tinsel and turkey. Thank you to Claire for joining our party and helping us spread good cheer and merriment to all our listeners. If you want show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 201 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at batlisted.fm. Though it's too late for Christmas, if you want to buy the books discussed on this or any of our other shows, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. And we're still keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky and Spirit Manifestations. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. And you can join in the book chat there. Yeah, well, your subscription brings other benefits, uh, Nikki. If you subscribe (laughs) at the lock listener level for a monthly fee, that's that's roughly twice Bob Cratchit's original annual salary, you'll get (laughs) not one, but two extra exclusive podcasts every month. It features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoyed our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you'll find us now. It's an oral plum pudding bursting with book chat. <laughs> oh, oh, please, I'm going to have to go and take a, take a Rennie. Oh, plus, <laughs> lot listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of yuletide praise and gratitude. Like this, Neville Hall, thank you. David Hooper. Thanks, David. Thank you. Catherine Milliken, thank you. Autumn L. Matha, thank you. Madeline Watts. Thank you. Leslie McFarlane, thank you. Joanne Nafee, thank you. Dara Cotter, thank you. Elizabeth Wilder, thank you. Connor McCarthy, thank you. And Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, Claire, is there anything you would like to add about uh, Christmas Carol or versions of a Christmas Carol that we didn't cover? We didn't talk about the Doctor Who Christmas Carol with the late Michael Gambon in it, but it isn't very good. So never mind. Or the Marcel Moso 1973 BBC mime version. And I guarantee you, Not folks... Not very good on audio podcasts, that <laughs> one. Yeah, I guarantee you someone will tweet saying, can't believe you didn't mention... Uh, but anyway, we, we tried to cover as many as we could. Claire, is there anything you would like to add? God bless us, everyone. Superb. Thank you all for listening. And we will wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And as Dickens himself said at the end of his last public performance of A Christmas Carol, from these garish lights I vanish now forevermore with one (laughs) heartfelt, grateful, respectful and affectionate farewell. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.